Hey everyone, Mike Vogel here for WashingtonCaps.com. Welcome to another episode of Break the Ice. We're joined this time by Caps Assistant General Manager, and that's a that's a new title. Actually, it's I think it's Assistant General Manager Player Personnel, Chris Patrick. And uh, Chris, congratulations on the promotion. It's Thank well you. deserved, richly deserved. You've you've been at this for a long time now, and <laughs> it, it's great to see. Um, you know, and normally when we when we do these things, we we start basically it's it's a it's kind of a cradle to to right now type of thing but in your case we're going to go back to probably about a hundred years before the cradle um being as you're you're part of what's known as hockey's royal family which i don't think is is a a hyperbolic term at all um your i guess would be your great-grandfather lester patrick yes born in 1883 uh him and his dad joe brother frank Built the first uh, indoor rinks out in Vancouver and, and Victoria. Uh, founded the Pacific Coast Hockey Association and invented a number of the rules that today seem commonplace, like the blue line, mm-hmm. um, forward pass, allowing the goalie to fall and make a save, uh, unif- uniform numbers on sweaters, all kinds of things that, that are just commonplace now were generated by by your family at what age were you when when you discovered this rich history of, of your family's relationship with the game how did you feel then and and how has that feeling evolved over the years as your own involvement of the game has grown yeah um i can't uh pinpoint a specific age but i was definitely young um you know i i know I was thinking back to my first ever Caps game I went to, and it was against the Hartford Whalers, and they were wearing Cooperalls. So I think that gives you a time frame. And at that point is when I was kind of hooked hooked on hockey. And, um, you know, there was kind of like a lot of stuff lying around the house. Like I'd pick up, you know, history of hockey books or encyclopedias of hockey, and I'd learn how to flip to the back and to the index and find Patrick, and I could read all about a lot of the stuff that you said. And um, so, yeah, I was kind of uh, – uh, really into it from a young age. I'd probably say probably six or seven. Um, I started playing around the same time, four or five. And um, yeah, so and then for me, yeah, it was a, a lifelong obsession. And, um, you know, I guess the, the family thing was always kind of cool, but I also tried, tried to not, you know, rest on that and, and try to achieve my um, accomplishments on my, on my own merits. And, and um, I definitely tried to appreciate my family history but also you know um make my own path in the game as well so and i think you've you've done exactly that you've absolutely carved out your own path and earned your own way but man that's that's gonna be something to see your your great-grandfather one of the first emergency goalies ever you know he'd been retired for six years didn't even play goalie when he was playing professionally uh steps steps in in a stanley cup final game he's still uh what 93 years later the oldest guy ever to play in a stanley cup final um and the rangers wound up winning the cup there and that was that was 1928 that's such an iconic photograph the original silver fox lester patrick standing in front of the net there um yeah no i'd I, that's exactly what popped in my head when you said that is that picture of him uh, with the silver hair. I think he was probably a little prematurely gray, but he was definitely, uh, you know, well into his forties at the time. And, um, you know, even I remember going up to my father's father's house, my grandfather's house. Um, and, 
you'd go in the basement and it was just like hockey history everywhere. I mean, he had all these old photos and, 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 you know, these old pictures that they would make of, of teams with like the headshots of the players and the managers and the owners. And I mean, I would just kind of walk through his basement and look, look at all this stuff. And even his, his TV room or his den had all these cool old photos from his playing days and, and some of the, you know, some of the artwork they would do around the players and stuff. It was really cool. Um, and, and I'm definitely, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a, you know, I, I have an appreciation for the history of, of things, especially of, of hockey. So I, you know, I, I couldn't get enough of it um, when I was at his house. And, um, you know, now it's, uh, now I go to my father's house and there's stuff from when I was a kid that's starting to look pretty historic now. Some of the hairstyles <laughs> and clothes and, and uh, things like that. So it's, it's pretty fun. It's been fun uh, throughout my life watching watching how the game's evolved and, and having an appreciation for the history of it. Yeah, it's funny. It doesn't take that long for that, for that stuff to happen either. And you, you're referring to your, your grandfather. That's Moe's Patrick. That's yes. your dad's dad. And he Correct. was a longtime coach of the Rangers, played in the NHL as well, and his brother Lynn. And then I guess Lynn's kids would have been Glenn and Craig. Correct, yeah. Both played in the NHL. Um, Craig Patrick, obviously the architect of uh, the Miracle on Ice team in, in 1980. Um you know, and I, I thought it was pretty great, too, when, when your dad won the Lester Patrick Award. Um, I, one of the highlights of my career here was being there that night in Dallas when he and Lou Lamorello, Mike Madano, um, and Eddie Olchick were, were inducted into the, uh, it was the it was U.S. Hockey, US Hockey yeah. Hall of Fame, yes. And, um, you know, I, I just thought that, w- that was a, a real, uh, you, you know, your dad's kind of, when I first started here, I sat down with him and, and got some amazing stories. He, he's he got a just a real gift for telling things, but he likes to keep it low-key. You kind of have to you mm-hmm. kind of have to put a quarter in him to, sure. to get those stories sure. out. But, boy, um, he's he's got some great ones, just riding trains back and forth between <laughs> Boston and New York as a kid with, with his dad and, you know, seeing the original six uh, teams and stuff. So, um, But let, let's get back to talking about your your – evolution here too you played youth hockey in this area yeah back uh, when youth hockey here was was pretty scarce sparse compared to what it is now what's that been like for you as, as a kid who played here in the 80s 90s to see now the burgeoning youth hockey movement in this area that's that's largely due to having Alex Ovechkin here for the last decade and a half. I mean, it's been incredible to see, you know, when I started playing as a kid, I played at Fairfax Ice Arena um, for a for a club program they had there. It ended up merging with another program that was playing out of uh, Mount Vernon Ice Rink. Um, and then when I got older and played for the Little Capture, um, practicing at Fort DuPont, you know, so – it was a pretty. It was a lot of driving just to get to my, you know, my normal team's practice. Any hockey player or parent will tell you is still the norm. But um, for me, what's been really cool to see with with a few more rinks added to the area is just the availability of ice. I mean, something like you know, stick and puck never existed when I was a kid, and I mean. I would have loved nothing more than be able to go on the ice with with a stick and a pair of gloves and a pair of skates and just mess around, right? Yeah. You'd go to public sessions and all you could do is skate laps, and then yeah. they'd change directions. You skate the other direction, and that was about it. Um, I think stuff like that's been been really good for the area because it lets you know kids kind of mimic that backyard rink experience that Canadian kids grow up with, and why I think yeah. a lot of them you know become so natural at the game at such an early age. Um, and then, yeah, like I remember my dad saying when I was a kid talking about 
youth hockey in Philadelphia area and how much it grew after, you know, the Flyers yeah. won their two cups and, and always kind of hoping that we could have something like that in Washington. And then when, when Alex came along, I think you just saw an explosion of, of hockey players. And, you know, I always laugh when you go to the, the Boston area, you hear a lot of kids named Cam and Tom. <laughs> and I feel like in, in this area, you're going to start seeing a lot of Alex's and Nick's and, and, um, you know, eventually hopefully see some, some Alex's and Alex's and Nick's that have really, really good success in the NHL from, you know, when they were kids, um, watching Alex Ovechkin playing here. So I think it's been, it is, there's still, I think a ton of upside opportunity yeah. for growth, but where we've come from when I was a kid to now is, is just phenomenal. And I'm guessing that you, you went to the Kent school, which is a, a pretty well-known uh, hockey prep type high school and that's in Connecticut if I'm not mistaken yep. and I'm guessing you went up there just to have the opportunity to play competitive hockey at, at a higher level than you would have I'm guessing that wasn't even a possibility in this area back then yeah um, I think when I was you know a middle school age down here what, what most kids did was um, at some point in high school they would go to a, a, a boarding school in New England to, to continue playing at you know, the, the junior leagues, like the USHL, they weren't quite as established, I guess, or maybe as well-known, at least in this area, by by players, where I think now that, that tends to be more the path of kids want yeah. to play, especially at the coll collegiate level. Um, but when I was kind of coming up, if, if you wanted to give yourself a chance to play at the collegiate level, from here, the, the best opportunity was to go to a boarding school in New England. And I think you just had better chance of being seen by, by recruiters and coaches up there. And um so for me, it was kind of a, you know, easy decision. And um, I'd had some experience with Kent because my father went there. So I got to visit it a couple of times, you know, when I was in seventh and eighth grade. And it, it was really hard to pass up. It was a beautiful area of Connecticut, um, you know, mountains kind of coming into this river and this valley. It was really cool. And, and uh, you know, as a as a kid growing up around here, you know, you play hockey, like you don't play with any of your friends. You have kind of like your hockey friends yeah. and your, your school friends. And, and so it was like really the first time where I got to like play and my buddies got to see me play. I got to play with my buddies. It was, it was a really cool experience for me. And it led to you being drafted by the Caps in the eighth round in 1994. And that draft was in Hartford yeah. too. So, I mean, it's pretty convenient for you. Um, and, and also led you to Princeton University where Jeff Halpern, was also on that team. You guys are both born the same year. Did you guys play with or against each other before you went to Kent? Yes. In the, in the area? Yeah, here? so I think the first time I played against Jeff, we were probably might age, and wow. I was playing for Fairfax, and he was playing for, it was either called Wheaton or Montgomery, but um, we played each other in the championship game, and I was actually playing defense back then, and we got smoked. His team killed us. And uh, <laughs> and then I would play him on and off, and then he, he moved more quickly than I did to um, higher level of hockey around here. It was like the, I think it was called the Washington Americans maybe. And then they became the little caps. Yeah. Um, so, but I did play with them um, when I was in middle school for the little caps. And like, we went to the, that Quebec international tournament with that team, which was an amazing experience. And then I went to Kent and I think about a year later, he went to St. Paul's um, in New Hampshire and, uh, so, yeah, so we were, you know, I think, um, we, you know, starting from around seventh or eighth grade, we were, we were pretty close and we would skate a lot in the summers together in high school. Um, 
I remember we had a, like a two or three week camp in Montreal that we wow. drove to together as 17 year olds to try to make sure enough coaches were seeing us. And, uh, and then he, um, you know, he was a way better player than me, but he was really small. So he uh, did an extra year after he graduated from St. Paul's in Stratford, Ontario. And so he, when he came to Princeton, I was already there. So when he came on his recruiting visit and stuff, I gave him the hard sell. And, and, uh, and yeah, we were lucky that he came our way. And, and um, obviously, we had a lot of success at Princeton with him there. Nice. And there was another guy from this area who played, I think, briefly in the Caps organization, too, Steve Sheriffs. I'm not sure if yeah, I'm Steve, saying that right. Yeah, Sheriffs. Yeah. From, from uh, Bethesda. Um, and it seemed like there were a lot of guys. You guys won an ECAC championship one year that you were there. And it seemed like a lot of those those guys went on to, to play pro. Um, I think Halpy might have been the only one to actually make it to the NHL. But did you give any thought to that after uh, graduating from Princeton, getting your degree there? No, I, I thought about it. Um, but, you know, my college career, I guess I, I don't think – when I looked at it realistically, I didn't think – um, I probably did enough to, to make me feel like I had a real legitimate shot as a professional. Um, you know, I think one of the nice things about giving yourself that option by going to college is you, you can make that decision. Like, you know, is, is am I going to be better off trying to play pro hockey or, or trying to start a different career? So it was hard because I wanted to play hockey for as long as possible. And, yeah. You know, some people get to decide when they stop and some people don't. I was one of the people that didn't get to decide when I stopped. So I decided I, I had some good opportunities to get into the working world. And I decided it was it was time for me to do that. And you did that. And, you know, how did you settle it? It was kind of the, the world of finance, <laughs> which is, I mean, that's it's similar to, to what Brian McClellan did yeah. after his playing days were over. He spent probably similar amount of time in, in that racket, so to speak, um, before moving back into the game that he loved yeah I was uh, I was pretty spoiled um you know I, was, I graduated from Princeton in 1998 so you're kind of at the height of the the tech the first mm -hmm. tech bubble yeah. you know the internet was just kind of like starting to be full swing there's a ton of opportunity to go work in finance for for you know banks and investors that were trying to to capture um capture on that craze so um you know, a lot of a lot of good firms came to enter, to Princeton to interview, sure. and I got involved with that. And and I, you know, I knew a lot of people that had gotten into the finance world that were ex athletes and stuff from Princeton, and it seemed to be a pretty good uh, transferable skill set. Um, so, you know, the job that I took right out of college it was it was one of those things where they didn't really care what your um, you know your your major your background was as long as you're willing to work hard and and to try to learn. So. Um, so yeah, I kind of went in pretty green to the whole uh, banking finance world, and I and I learned a lot in a couple years um, working for an investment bank. And then, you know, I came to a decision point. It was kind of like a two-year program um, where you either, you know, some people leave and go to business school, some people stay on, some people leave and go to a different area of finance. And I, at that point, I thought about you know because I always wanted to get back into hockey, um, but it just. I know the timing just didn't seem right to me, and so I, I um, I, I made a move over to to private equity and, and had a job for four years with a, um, a private equity venture capital type firm just north of Baltimore, and then uh, and then went to business school from there, <laughs> and then 
uh, got back into finance after business school, not to give you my entire resume, but, then, um, and then finally the, it got to the point where it's like, you know, that hockey had always been in the back of my head. I'd, I'd come to Caps games and it kind of, you know, it, it wasn't any fun watching with no skin in the game, you know, yeah. just kind of being a fan and, um, and I, I got to a point where I was like, you either got to do it or, or just get over it and realize you're not ever going to do it. And, and I kind of, I finally got the push and talked to my wife and she was on board. And, and so, um, you know, I credit George, like I saw him right after I graduated from college, he, he came to my grandfather's funeral and I remember him saying to me, um, you know, go do your thing in finance, but whenever you're ready to get back into hockey, just give me a call and we'll find something for you. So I called up George McPhee and said, I'm ready. And he said, all right, I got something for you. And it was, it was uh, way easier than it should have been, but um, it, it was great, and I appreciated the opportunity and kind of just grew from there. And I believe you started out working in, in player development with, with General, probably, and um, Steve Richmond to, to the listeners out there, and, yeah. uh, um, and, and doing some scouting of, of maybe players that were already in the system. Yeah, I mean, when when you hear how I kind of you know, called George and said I'm ready, you can see why the job was kind of a uh, – it was kind of a, a mix of a few things, but I, he wanted to have, you know, someone that was getting into Hershey Mord and kind of yeah. watching the younger guys there. Cause at the time we had a lot of young players yeah. coming through there and, um, and that wasn't really a, a full-time job. So while I was doing that, they also had me, you know, watching other player uh, other teams drafted prospects, um, that were playing in junior in college. And that's a job that, um, that Marty Pouliot does now for us, um, way better than I did when I did it. But, um, and then I also helped out Steve with kind of the, the college free agent um, process just because yeah. it's such a compressed time frame. They all play on the weekends. And so I would go, kind of go and he'd send me to different spots and I'd, I'd check out whoever he was tracking on those teams. So it was great. I got to see a bunch of different aspects of the game. Um, you know, hockey at the major junior level, hockey at the collegiate level, hockey at the minor pro level. So it really helped me kind of get assimilated to where, you know, different players were and what the skill sets were needed to, to have success at those levels. So it, it was really a good start. And that led you into pro scouting. And, and I, I think, I think scouts are, are the, they're the lifeblood of this game. And, and I, I there's n- no people in this game that I enjoy talking to more than, than scouts. Um, it, it's quite a culture. Um, it's quite a fraternity I think it's fascinating how every team has a couple of dozen of them and they all talk amongst themselves, but they're, they're tight with, with, you know, they're, it's, it's like a poker game that never <laughs> ends. It seems like you, who you tell your, your actual opinions on players and philosophies and whatnot are, are the guys within your own realm and, and you're, you're, you're very close to the vest. It seems like with, with everyone from, from the other 31 teams now. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's definitely. Um, I'm trying to put this delicately. It's you know <laughs> you you want to be able to give out a, enough information that you get some information back. You know, without you know saying too much to um, you know the other side. But you know, I, I think uh, at least on the pro scouting side, it's there's definitely um, a, a bit of a. Um, fraternity among the the pro scouts I think that you know when, when I first started in the pro scouting there's a lot of guys that were really helpful like as far as like you know here's a good place to stay here's a good you know a good schedule for you even guys from other teams like oh have you ever stayed at this hotel it's way better than where you're staying and um and things like that but uh you know I think 
you know, some definitely some some tend to like to talk more than others. I think you can find that with, I mean, really any any industry. Some people want to want to have their opinion heard, and they yeah. they don't care who hears it. I, I think our group does a good job of of playing it close to the vest and um and and just kind of keeping our heads down and 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 watching and observing and and taking in what we see. But. I feel like pro scouting too has has really been critical for this franchise here over the last decade. I mean, I don't think you win the cup without Brett Connolly and, and Michael Kempney right right off the top. Um, and even right now when you look at a guy like Nick Dowd, um, Daniel Sprong, Trevor Van Den Riemsdyk, um, you've got you've got kind of an aging core um, and, and you're a cap team, so you, you, you have to find ways of filling in around the edges, and you guys managed to do that, um, I've, I think, quite adeptly, adroitly is probably a better word, in, in 13 of the last 14 years in the playoffs, and I think a lot of, a lot of kudos goes to you, you guys in the pro scouting department for keeping that, that run going. Yeah, thanks. I mean, it's definitely, um, you know, it's a lot of – the process too, you know, I think, um, you know, Max very, um, he's very methodical in his process. It's, it's very easy to, to work with him because, you know, he, he identifies a need, whatever it may be, you know, for example, with Kempney that year, the need that I identified, you know, early at training camp was defensive depth and, and a guy that can play with Carly and a guy that can do certain things that we need. And, and so, you know, you make a list and the scouts put their heads together. Here's, here's 15 guys we think could do that. And, um, you know, the analytics side, same thing. We go through all the names on the list and then we just start watching them and ticking them off and seeing who's the best fit and then who's available, who's not. And then, and then Matt gets, you know, starts fielding the calls and this guy might be too pricey for us. This guy isn't going to be available. Sounds like this guy's going somewhere else. And so I think, it's as much the process as actually, you know, the the scouts going out there and seeing the guys and, and making sure that we're making the right reads on these guys. Um, I think the process is really solid as well. So, um, but I think it's definitely something we're proud of, and I think we do a good job as well. I mean, our, organizationally, we want to have a good team in Hershey too, and, yeah. and, you know, the pro scouts do a lot of heavy lifting on that because, you know, there's guys that it's just you don't see them as much. Um, they're playing at different levels of the minors. There's so much focus on the NHL. NHL players and and to be able to you know it's getting to the point now where it's significant investment in these players you know the the top guys we're signing now for two-way deals in Hershey are making you know in the mid fours in the in the AHL so these are these are serious financial commitments that you need to be right on so I think we've done a good job on on that aspect as well yeah and those players are important you you know you've got that veteran limit in the in the American League but you you need the right guys to have the right sort of mindset and and they have that honest assessment in their heads of where their own careers are at. They're not, you know, politically trying to push push a kid aside and thinking that they belong in the show. They, 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 a lot of them seem to have accepted that they are where they are, and if they get a couple of games or whatever in, in the NHL, that's great. But uh, I think that, that, like you said, that goes way under the radar, how important those guys are because, I mean – that's the the major development league, and and you mentioned the importance of Hershey, just the success of that franchise, and the number of times in the uh, the the two teams' relationship, the latest relationship that's mm-hmm. like fifteen, sixteen years now. What is there? Three Calder Cups, I think, and a couple other trips to the finals as well. 
Um, the winning is important because winning helps develop, but you've got to have those those staple players down there. And even going back to, what, 2016 when they were in the final against Lake Erie, um, some of the guys they had there that year were, were pretty important to, to pushing those kids up through the system and getting them, the Jacob Ranas and, you know, some of the other guys that were on that team that Travis Boyd um, that, that made it to the NHL. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think for us, we'd way rather have our kids playing in a winning environment. And, you know, I just put there, there's more value, you know, I think in an AHL regular season game compared to an NHL regular season game, you know, there's a there's a step back. But when you get into a an AHL, you know, second, third, fourth round playoff series, that that's you're playing pretty good hockey. And, and that, you know, that series against Lake Erie that you referenced, I mean, I can't remember all the guys, but just off the top of my head, I know Josh Anderson was playing on the other side. Yeah. Zach Wierenski was playing on yeah. the other side. I think Bjork Strand. Bjork Strand, yeah. correct. Yeah, I think the uh, was it Forsberg was playing goal. I think, but they also had um, there was one other goalie who's in the NHL now. It just name slipped my mind, but I mean it was a stacked team. Yeah, it was. So, so here's you know our guys got to play against a really good hockey team. Um, most of those guys were in the NHL the next year. Uh, it's a great experience for them, and you know unfortunately they lost, but the you know they're playing in front of 18,000 really loud fans in, in Cleveland there in game yeah. four or five, whatever yep. it was. And so it was, um, you know, I just don't think you can get that experience anywhere else. And, and there's definitely a model that says you just let your young kids play and get the experience. But I think if you have them playing in a winning environment, it's, it can just, you can really, uh, the growth can be exponential because they get to play in situations that they might not otherwise have played in. And, you know, I remember thinking um, in that 2018 series against Pittsburgh when we were going into Pittsburgh without Tom, without Nick. Um, I think Andre Burkowski was without, out as well. Without Berkey. Yep. And we had Nate Walker and Travis Boyd and I think Shane Gersich all in. Yep. And, I mean, I was nervous, but I was also like, well, I mean, they've played in big games too. This is why we do it. Let's see if it, let's see if it plays out and – I thought they all did a really good job that night. They sure did. Yeah. Um, before before that Lake Erie series too, huge upset over the Toronto, uh, Toronto Marlies <laughs> too. That you want to talk about a stacked team? That yeah. team, that team was loaded for bear, and and uh, that wasn't even a close series. Yeah. So um, the the importance of maintaining that relationship too, because you you see these divorces that happen with teams and their their AHL affiliates, and a lot of times those those there's they're just at loggerheads. They've got two different mindsets as far as what the team should look like, and we see it happen all the time. But it's it seems like the the Caps and Hershey have maintained a pretty amicable at at le- at the very least relationship here over better part of two decades now. And as, as you alluded to, I mean that's that was kind of one of your initial responsibilities, and that seems to have really flourished during your time. Yeah, I mean, I think it helps that at the end of the day, you know, our organizational philosophy aligns with theirs, which is, you know, have a, a competitive winning team. Um, and, you know, I think it's it, – they've been good and patient, you know, in those years where we've probably had maybe a thinner group of prospects joining them because we traded away picks or traded away yeah. prospects. You know, we do our best to try to supplement, like you said, in the free agent market. But, you know, you're never going to be able to find a Jacob Rana when, when he played in Hershey. I mean, it's like you, you don't find guys like that at the sure. AHL level. I mean, he can score with ease down there. Um, so, so they're patient as far as like, hey, 
we know you're working hard to get the best team you can on the ice. And, and when they see teams like that stacked Toronto team or the, the Charlotte team that we lost in the second round to a couple of years ago, that was also stacked. Yeah. I mean, they understand that they're in a different place organizationally than we are. So that, so that helps. And, and, you know, I think we've done a good job. I think we've only missed the playoffs once, um, at least since I've been involved. And, and that's really all you can have. Just like the, the NHL for the most part in the AHL, once you get in the playoffs, you know, a whole lot of things have to go your way to have success. Um, you do get the odd team like Toronto was that year that where they're just, they're so full of prospects that it's hard for anybody to beat them. And, um, you know, and I think you could say a couple of the years that we won, um, those Hershey teams were so, so stacked that it, it was really hard for most teams to compete. I think until you got to the, maybe the, the semis or the finals. Um, but for the most part, you know, the first, first round is always a five game series and, those are terrifying series because anything can happen. <laughs> I know. I, I wish. I wish Major League Baseball would would make all their series best of seven and and the AHL too. I get. I get why why there's a reluctance to do so, yeah. but I, I don't think that you get necessarily the, the true best team advancing all the time, which I, I think is for for me. It's it, it, there's more integrity in a seven game series. I, w- I would like to see that be the norm. Yeah, all around uh, yeah. Uh, pro sports. We, we talk in the media a ton about chemistry on the ice, but um, upstairs here, so many of you guys have been working together for decade, decades, and in, in some cases, um, and it just seems like that year in and year out, you guys all know exactly what you need to do. Um, there's there's real good um, camaraderie and cohesion among all you guys in the front office in analytics, in pro scouting, um, the, now a trio of AGMs, and all of you guys have worked together for a long time. And even Mac, you know, before he, he moved into the big chair in 2014, had been at this for, for 10 years, 10-plus 10 years. Yeah. How much does that help you guys um, where, where you're, you're not constantly, you know, um, trying to integrate people? You, you do have, you know, the integration here and there, but um, you guys just seem to really know your business and, and get to it. Yeah. You know, I think when I think about our group um, and our larger group, I, I think it's really, there, there's not many egos. There's no egos. I mean, everybody and everybody has a voice. I, I think those are the two things that are, you know, why we've been successful as a group, why there hasn't been, you know, um, an exodus of people or, you know, having a lot of turnover because it, uh, there's, there's really no egos and everybody has a voice at the table. So, you know, it, when we're doing stuff for free agency, the trade deadline, it's, it's Mac, it's the pro staff, it's the analytics staff. And, and there's not one group that, you know, outvotes another group and there's not one group that, you know, what they say goes and, and it's okay to have disagreements. Like you can, you know, I can say something about a player and, you know, Brian Sotheby or Matt Bradley or, or Fitzy or Tim Barnes can disagree with me and that's fine. And, and it's not my job to say, to be right or to prove my point. My job is to say what I believe. Their job is to say what they believe. And then Mac weighs that and makes his decision based on that. So I think for the most part, we tend to get to consensus. Um, but there's always, um, opportunity for debate and and no one's ever you know we no one ever feels piled upon or or you know um beaten down for their opinion um so i think 
when you have that freedom to express your opinion, you get, you know, you just get a healthier decision-making process. And I definitely think, uh, um, you know, that, that setup for our group is, you know, I think there's other teams that would like to have a similar, you know, consistency like we've had. I, I know Mac will get, you know, people will talk to him and be like, you guys got a really good group there. And, and, you know, just from seeing us from, from the outside looking in and, and I think he's pretty proud of that fact. So. Yeah, and and absolutely should be too. Um, l- the last eighteen months or so have, have been crazy for everybody on the planet. Um, what's it been like? What have been the special challenges that you guys, um, as scouts, ha- have had to deal with over that period of time? And what's it been like from from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think scouting wise, the the hardest thing is really from um, like. The, basically the trade deadline of 2020 you know we we basically stopped being able to go to games um you know i was able to get like the last seat on the bus to get into the bubble for toronto which was fantastic because i could see a whole bunch of games live yeah. so i was really the only guy that saw live games from march 2020 until you know last season started and then last season um, kind of depending on where we were lucky that where we had guys living worked out, you know, Matt Bradley in Ottawa was able to get into Ottawa games and could see any, all the Canadian teams. Um, Brian Sotheby is in Nashville. Nashville opened up sooner than other places. So he's able to get into games. Um, and then Jason Fitzsimmons was able to get to games in Carolina. I could come to games here. So we were able to cover the league, but, um, you know, it wasn't our normal process. Our normal process is guys get out. Um, we don't have necessarily assigned teams. Um, you kind of have what naturally happens based on kind of where you live and what games are easier for you to get to. And, and the way the schedule is now, I mean, you see all the Western teams, you know, fairly easily, um, you know, they'll come through for, for me, for example, you know, every Western team is going to come through the New York, uh, Philly, yeah. Boston, and D.C. area at least once. And so you'll, you'll get a chance to see all those teams pr- fairly easily. So um, so the challenge has been, I feel like it's been very kind of like siloed views for guys. Um, and, you know, I just trying to watch the games on, on TV or video feeds for me just wasn't as effective scouting. I think you can, for me, I can watch clips of players that way and, and, and maybe get a feel, but to try to watch the full game and get a feel the way I would if I was actually there, it just wasn't the same for me. So, so you know, I feel like I'm very excited to get out and see some games this spring, especially or this fall, especially the the Western teams I didn't get to see live last year and just kind of get fresh on, on some of those guys. And I think that that was probably the biggest challenge, just guys being able to see, you know, see the teams that, that we need to see. Yeah, and you're not able to do any cross-checking where you, you get multiple sets of eyes on the, the same teams exactly. and, and players. Uh, it probably makes it real difficult. Um, you know, this team is obviously spent to the cap pretty much every year. Um, Going to be nickels away from it this year again, I'm sure. Um, it seems like over these last 18 months – you guys have found ways of spending money that doesn't go toward the cap, but could could go a long way toward making you better. And I'm speaking specifically of um, hiring some additional amateur scouts to kind of what you just said, cover some of the areas that you weren't able to get to. And I think hiring Dr. Amy Kimball too, uh, and I had her on uh, our last episode of the show, I, I just always thought that 
we didn't pay enough attention to the the mental aspect of performance recovery the game and i mean you you know this i, f- I feel like you're a guy who probably when he was 18 19 had it together more than, than most of us did at that age. But, you know, a lot of times when you're that young and you're that gifted and you're, you're getting paid as much as some of these guys are getting paid and all of a sudden you got a ton more free time than you're used to having, there's all sorts of potential for things to go haywire. And I think too many – and it's natural because I think it's just a human thing, especially when you're an athlete, your mental peak comes – after your physical peak and a yeah. lot of times by the time you understand what you've got and the opportunity that you have man that window's starting to starting to close on you and to have somebody who's who's able to maybe center these guys at an earlier age and have them understand that you know the clock's always ticking make the most of of everything you have right now i just think that these are these are good investments especially for a team like this one that that has a a great core and a core that's been together for a number of years now, but also admittedly an aging core. Yeah. I mean, I think definitely we want to be getting the most out of all of our prospects at this point. Um, because like you said, it, you know, uh, th- the core has been together a long time and, and we're a team that spends to the cap and, and you know, that the cheapest best players you can add is, is if you have a really good prospect that comes in on, on a, you know, entry level deal, it can play a couple of years on that deal. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think Amy and, and, and some of the other additions we've had in player development, you know, um, Brooks Orbick and Jim yeah. Slater over the last couple of years, it's, it's been really good because, you know, I don't, I don't know if, um, if people realize how young these, these kids are when they come to Hershey and it's like, you know, you know, what are you doing away from the rink besides playing video games? You know, you have a hobby, like have something to do. Um, you know, how are you, you know, can you cook? If you, if you can't cook, what do you do for yeah, meals? What are you because, eating? Yeah. You, you have to yeah. eat the right way. I mean, you know, there with, I think very few exceptions, most of these guys, you know, what they put in their body, it's like everything's measured and, and um and looked after and and the guys have had the most success and longest careers and you know, take that to an extreme and uh, you know Brooks was one of those guys that really was um, really careful about everything he ate and how he recovered and and what he did you know on the flight f- back from a game and what he did the next day and um, I think these are all things that the younger you can get these these players thinking about it the better and the better chance they have at having a long career um, so I think and and then. The, the mental aspect, you know, to me is you can see such, you know, I'm back and forth between Hershey and pro games and, and Washington. And, you know, you see such a difference um, sometimes in, in the mental aspect of the game. Like, you know, I, I like to tell some of the young players sometimes, like watch, watch Nick Backstrom when he gets a penalty called against him. Like yeah. he just goes to the penalty yep. box because he knows. You're not changing no, anything. You're not changing anything. It's not worth. And sometimes, you know, some players will get, so bent out of shape that it ruins the rest of their period. Like they're just, they need to go to the locker room to reset. And I think when you have someone like Amy, that you can give them tools to like be able to reset without having to like, you know, reset the next game or the next period. Like let's have an instantaneous reset here. And, um, you know, I think a lot of that stuff players learn as they, 
as they develop and the, and the earlier you can get them kind of on that right path, the better. It's an important thing about the penalties too, because you, you're, you're kind of hurting yourself for every game you're ever going to yes. play from here on out. It, it's the Joe Riki complex. <laughs> I love Joe and he knows I love him, but that guy never took a penalty that, <laughs> that he deserved. Exactly. <laughs> Last thing before we let you go, obviously 2018 was a special time for, for all of us in the organization, but uh, it had to mean a lot for you and your dad to, to get your name on the cup and to be able to share that experience on June 7th, 2018. When you think back to that and you think to your, your days, respective days with the cup, what are the things that, that are always going to stand out for you? Oh, there's a lot. Um, you know, I, one of the things I, I'd never really talked about, but secretly hoped when I got involved was like, you know, it'd be awesome if, you know, me helping does something, to get this team over the edge because I'd love to see my dad win a cup because I know like it, he would never say it, but yeah. like there was a, a, a burn there for that, for, to win that cup. And I know like, and so <laughs> he, he'll probably kill me for telling the story, but he may not even remember, but like during the playoffs, like every year, but I think that year, especially like he, he was just very preoccupied, you know, it was his, you could kind of tell his mind was elsewhere a lot because he's just, I mean, you know how it is you get in these series and it's just like all you can think about and, mm-hmm. and it's just, you're kind of waiting all day for the next game. And so, you know, we went in Vegas, I, I you know, bombed downstairs with Mac, I go on the ice and like, first thing I want to do is see my dad, I give him a big hug. And then we're just kind of standing around for the rest of the night. And, and like a couple of months later we were talking about it and he goes to me, he's like, Chris, were you in Vegas for that game five? I was, like, <laughs> I was like, yeah, dad. Like we had this wonderful moment that I was going to like take to the grave with me, but I guess not so much for you, but it's just like, you know, I think for him it was such a relief to like finally win it. And like, I mean, it's so much like stress and tension and like, I know he wanted to deliver one for the city and I know he wanted to deliver one just to be another Patrick on there. So, um, yeah, like for me to be able to, you know, see your father accomplish that finally and to actually be involved in helping him get there was, was really special for me. And, and then, you know, I think for the cup days and things like that, like, it's just really cool to see, um, you know, there's so much sacrifice from, from the families, from my wife and kids and my mom and my sisters, like my poor, my poor older sister lives in Boston and like <laughs> the stuff she has to hear from Boston fans year in and year out. Yeah. And like, so to see them to, to be able to come to Virginia and come to my father's house and, and, and hang out with the cup with their families, it was, it was really special. Yeah. I think it meant a lot to all of us, you know, it, without Dick Patrick, this team probably isn't even here right now he goes back to the save the caps in, yeah. in the early 80s so uh, it meant a lot to i think a lot of us to see him uh with his name on the cup and 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 enjoying it as as well because uh i mean nobody there's as we alluded to earlier there's a there's a lot of people that go back a couple of decades or so here but nobody goes back further than yeah. your dad so yeah thanks so thanks so much chris for for taking the time and sharing a lot of great stories with us here today and look forward to the season ahead and and everything that's ahead in, in your career the rest of the way too. Thank you. I appreciate it. I, I always enjoy, uh, you know, I think you're kind of, for me, the unofficial Caps historian. Like you, you go back pretty far with this team. So it's always fun talking, uh, talking Caps with you. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate that too. I tried it.